Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Aria, a volunteer host for the New Book Network's National Security Channel. I'm here to introduce you to groundbreaking authors, and together I hope we can explore books that perhaps don't fit under the traditional national security umbrella. I tend to view these issues as intersectional, and I think we should strive to consider disciplines and topics that stretch our understanding of what is relevant to national security. A little about me, I work as a counsel on the House Judiciary Committee. As a standard disclaimer, the statements, questions, or opinions shared on this podcast do not reflect those of my employer. I do this for fun, to meet brilliant people, and to explore new and interesting books. Now, on to the real reason you're all here, the book and our delightful author. I am thrilled to introduce you today to my friend, Barry Lynn. He's currently the executive director for the Open Markets Institute, and prior to that, he led the New America Foundation's Open Markets Program. Before entering the think tank world, Barry was a prolific journalist for the AP and AFP, working as a correspondent throughout the Caribbean, Central, and South America. Barry's life work has been committed to exposing and explaining the risks of unfettered market consolidation, both here and abroad, and the impact this concentration of political economic power has on the liberties of everyday citizens. Barry has shared his extensive insight and research in numerous congressional appearances, including at the state level. I am privileged to know Barry both through my day job and as my friend, so it is Super fun for me that he's here today. We're going to discuss his soon-to-be-published book, Liberty from All Masters, The New American Autocracy Versus the Will of the People, which builds on his 2005 book, End of the Line, The Rise and Coming Fall of the Global Corporation, and his 2010 book, Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism and the Economics of Destruction. Barry, it's a delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. It's great to be here. Um. Are you you surviving in this weird post-apocalyptic world, currently apocalyptic world that we're living in? Yeah, I don't think we're beyond the apocalypse yet. So, uh, (laughs) no, it's um, uh, we're doing okay. I mean, compared to so many people, uh, you know, my my wife and I were and my family, we're in good shape. You know, so compared to other folks, we, we have nothing to complain about. You know, it's truly a terrible moment for America, for the world. But uh you know, you have to keep things in perspective, and uh, you know, it's uh, we're in good shape. I think one advantage with everyone working from home is that we all are we're either folks are discovering a love for baking or rediscovering a love for reading. I certainly have taken the opportunity to do that, and I think that's why it's great that your book is coming out. I believe on the twenty first. No, I'm sorry, thirtieth. Twenty ninth. Twenty ninth. Guessing wrong across yeah. the board. Time has no meaning anymore, Barry. Has no. It meaning. doesn't. It really is. We're <laughs> we're so far beyond time. To qu- to quote the great Russ Cole, "Time is a flat circle." Hmm. Um, okay, so I think first, what would be helpful is if you sort of explain to the folks listening how you got into this type of work in the first place. Like, what really drove you to ex- focus your research and writing on the short and long-term dangers of monopolies across the world. Yeah, and that's a, it's a good question because the last thing I expected 
when I was growing up or in the early part of my career was to be talking now about antitrust law and anti-monopoly law and competition policy and and democracy and and you know human liberty that was uh, you know I was uh, as you noted I was you know working overseas as a correspondent and uh, you know but uh, uh, what sort of got me into this is uh, I kind of got into it at a, at a very macro level I uh, was running a magazine called Global Business and I was studying how big corporations organize their supply chains, how they organize their operations. You know, it's like why they decide to manufacture something in China, why they decide to buy something from a manufacturer in Vietnam. Uh, you know, how do they, how do they ship it all? You know, uh, you know, what do they fly and what do they put on a, uh, a steamship? And, uh, you know, we were, it was a good magazine. It was a, uh, it was a great product. Uh, we had a terrific, uh, Set of very high-level readers, and uh, um, but it was very much, it was a very practical look at uh, international business. And then one day there was this earthquake in Taiwan. This is back in September of 1999. You know, this is 21 years ago. And uh, I, uh, within a couple of days of that event, all these factories in the United States had shut down. All these computer factories, and you know, just a you know, long story short. What happened, what you know, proved to have happened is that all of a certain kind of semiconductor is uh, made in a town called Sinju in Taiwan. And those semiconductors, they're very valuable. So when you send them to other factories, you send them on a just-in-time basis. You, you fly them from one place to another. So the earthquake had knocked out the power to the airport. They couldn't fly these chips from one place to another. And that meant that all these computer factories in the United States shut down within a matter of days. And I was like, well, that shouldn't happen. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's pretty basic. It's a pretty basic rule. You don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? You know, we, we learned that when we we're three years old. You know, it's uh, uh, folk wisdom. And yet here we are as a, as a people, you know, we've, that we put all these, these really important eggs, these semiconductors into a single basket. And that basket is, is in Taiwan. And Taiwan is right off the coast of China. Uh, so you have uh, that basket sitting on a physical fault line, you know, an earthquake fault right, line, right. Uh, and also a political fault line, you know, where, you know, it's like anything can go wrong between Taiwan and China at almost any time. Right now, today, there's huge tensions, very dangerous tensions. So I was like, well, golly, this is really silly. You know, why would we do this? So I, uh, it, that's what got me going was just sort of, asking that question over and over again to people in the international relations community, to economists, to people in the national security community, to people in the White House, to people in the CIA, uh, you know, to people in industry, you know, because I had my best contacts back then were in industry. So I just knocked on door after door after door and said, do you understand this? Do you know what this problem is? Do you understand why it happened? Do you, have you thought about the implications? And I ended up writing an article in Harper's that came out in July of 2002. And then that led to my first book, the one you mentioned, End of the Line, that came out in 2005, you know, which is 15 years ago already. And, um, but, um, you know, what I came to understand from that is when it was monopoly, it was this change in how we do competition policy that lay at the core of the problem. It led us to do this really silly thing of putting all of our really important eggs in one basket. I'm glad you mentioned end of the line because I think 
I certainly when I read Liberty, I felt that I also needed to go back and read End of the Line and Cornered in order to help put it all together and that it is on my to-do list. I will admit I have not done yet. But could you walk through sort of what were the, you know, maybe the top three, like top lines from both of the previous books? Because I think that feeds into what you go through in great detail in Liberty from All Masters. Yeah. So the key thing with End of the Line is, you know, that we, you know, with semiconductors, but also with all these other goods, you know, we had sort of, we woke up one day and found that rather than being made in 10 different places, rather than being manufactured in five different places, they were manu being manufactured in one place in the world. And that made the system very fragile and it, and it opened us up and opened up other countries to certain types of coercion, you know? So, uh, you know, uh, a, a, another government might, uh, you know, threaten to cut off that supply. And then it, you would actually end up doing things you didn't want to do in order to keep the supply going. Uh, so, you know, the point of that book was just to warn the people running the U.S. governments, you know, the people running U.S. Uh, 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 corporations that we had this, this, this choke point, this threat. And um, in the process of writing that, that's when I, you came to understand that, uh, you know, the source of this was this radical revolution in how we do competition policy. You know, today we sometimes call it neoliberalism. Sometimes we call it Chicago school, but it was in the process of writing my first book that I, I said, well, how, how, how can we have done something this, this, this insane? And it really is kind of insane. And uh, um, ultimately I got to these writings by Robert Bork, by Richard Posner, uh, by Milton Friedman, you know, back in the 70s and early 80s uh, that had sort of advocated for this radical change in how we do competition policy. And um, that new philosophy had succeeded. It was embraced by the Reagan administration in the early 1980s. It was then embraced by the Clinton administration in the 1990s. So um, in the process of writing the first book, I came upon an even bigger story. Not only do we face this fragility within our system, our industrial system, but we also face this concentration of economic power and control that affects, uh, can affect us politically and it can affect us, uh, our, our economic welfare. So it was in the process of writing the first book that I said I'd better write a second book as well. And that was, you know, that was cornered. And, and the purpose of cornered was to move away from warning about the fragility of the system to saying, hey, monopolies are back, monopolies are bad, Monopolies uh, threaten our, our our economic well-being. They they drive up prices. They drive down wages. Uh, but they uh, they drive down variety. They drive down quality. Uh, but they also threaten us politically. You know, they concentrate control over the governments. They concentrate control over uh, you know uh, over your you know they they limit what you can do day to day. They 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 limit how you can work. They limit uh, the kind of uh, dreams you can dream, uh, you know, uh, there's certain types of activities that Americans just aren't allowed to engage in anymore because someone else owns that activity. Uh, so uh, that was the point of, of cornered was to say, hey, monopolies are back. They're really dangerous. They threaten our democracy. They threaten our liberty. They threaten our communities. And uh, that came out in 2010. And um, uh, so those two books were the, you know, kind of the foundations of all the work that we've done at Open Markets. It's allowed us to 
build up, uh, you know, build up a program. And, you know, we're now up to about 20 people at open markets. And uh, so it's a, uh, it was the, the, the intellectual foundation for the work that we've done as a program, but also the work that we've done within this growing movement. It is anti-monopoly right. movement. I'm glad you mentioned sort of the, the shift in policies uh, in the 70s and 80s, because one of the things I found incredibly helpful with Liberty is that it walks through the historical precedent and lines it up with sort of the ideals our founding fathers had. And I think you specifically wrote about and have testified also on some of the famous debates of, of Senator Sherman in the late 1800s. And you walked through the three distinct goals that came out of what was really a prescient period in legislative reforms on this issue. Before we get into how things have shifted in the, in the modern day, could you walk through what were the sort of the three, the three main goals uh, originally of anti-monopoly enforcement so then we can also then talk about how they've changed uh, yeah so the you know the so anti-monopoly enforcement was um you know and it, it's important i, I kind of take it even a step back you know so i mean anti-monopoly is really the purpose of what the declaration of independence was about you know it's like hey we're going to be independent from the british east india company we're going to be Brit- uh, independent from the British state. We're going to be independent from the uh, uh, the British religious establishment. You know, we're going to make our nation independent. We're going to make each of us individually independent. You know, and and obviously that you know there were limits to what we achieved at the beginning. We didn't we didn't go back and say, uh, you know, the independence at the beginning was just for white males, and it wasn't even for all white males. It's like at the very beginning there were restrictions on voting so that you kind of had to have certain kinds of property. So, you know, women couldn't vote. Obviously, slaves couldn't vote. In a lot of cases, free black men were not allowed to vote. And in a lot, many places, uh, lower class uh, white men were not allowed to vote. Uh, but the, that set of principles is what people then use, a set of tools is what people use to sort of expand sort of this empire of liberty that we created in America. And, uh, over many years, you know, and that's really what the, the foundations of the, the Constitution are. We, we uh, you know, the way to understand the Constitution, the world where throughout the, the state, it's constantly breaking power and it's separating, the so- it even separates the sovereignty between individual states and the federal government, which is a way of breaking power. Uh, so the entire American experiment, you know, from the beginning was an anti-monopoly experiment, you know, so, but then we get to, uh, uh, there was a period in which we kind of lost control, you know, we lost control to the railroads and we lost control to the telegraph companies. And then we lost control to big corporations like Carnegie Steel and Standard Oil that leveraged the railroads and telegraph corporations to get enormously large and powerful. And uh, at that point, we decided we needed new laws. And you, you mentioned the, the Sherman Act, in, in, you know, which was passed in 1890. So what the Sherman Act did is that's the beginning of a process uh, sort of to rethink the basic principles of the founding for the industrial era. And that process took, you know, it took a long time. It starts in 1890. It continues into uh, the 
through the plutocratic era. It continues up through the time of Teddy Roosevelt and and uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, the, the election in 1912. Uh, and at the end of this process, we end up with sort of three principles, you know, and one of them is that if you have monopolies, when you have a railroad, when you have a, a, a telecommunication telephone system uh, the basic principle is that if if it must be a monopoly then you have to ensure that everybody has equal access all the time at the same price at the with the same terms of service no discrimination that's rule of law that's the that's foundational to rule of law uh, and and that's how we sort of establish rule of law in, in, an, in, in the case where you actually need a monopoly railroad telegraph system telephone system the second thing is, if you have something that's really big, you know, if you have uh, heavy industry, if you're making aluminum, if you're making uh, airplanes, or if you're making, uh, 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 you know, semiconductors, you know, where it costs a lot of money to do this, uh, you, you, the basic approach of America was that we're going to have at least four of these. We're never going to have fewer than four. We, we, you know, we can have 10, we can have 20, that would be great, but we're never gonna have fewer than four. We're gonna have a rule of four when it comes to heavy industry. And then in pretty much every other part of our economy, when it came to farming, when it came to small business, when it came to uh, uh, just uh, making uh, uh, bread, uh, we said, we're just gonna have as many as we can have. We're gonna try and keep the unit of production at the level of the family. So farm, one farm, one family, one grocery store, one family, one bakery, one family. So that was the, the you know, the, the basic role for 200 years in America is the unit of production is at the, at the level of one family. Uh, so uh, it's a, you know, compare that to where we are today and you see radically different the world that we used to live in here in America was. So, and you, you touched on this uh, a little bit earlier when you talked about the Chicago school. There was this shift, right, this shift in the, this approach to anti-monopoly enforcement in the 70s or 80s. What, and that's obviously really shaped how we, we handle things now. What happened, and in your view, why did that happen? Like, what was the shift? Yeah, so, and that's a key thing. Like, one way to sort of understand, going back to the founding, and this is what Sherman did in the in 1890s, he restated the principles of the founding. This is what Brandeis did in 1912, and Wilson, and, and then what FDR did in the 1930s, is they restated the principles of the founding. And the principles were, we're going to use anti-monopoly law to protect our democracy. We're going to use anti-monopoly law to protect our liberty as individuals to engage with one another without corporations telling us what to do and manipulating us and governing us. Um, we're gonna use our, uh, our anti-monopoly laws to ensure the, the, the independence of our communities so that the people who live in Peoria uh, uh, run Peoria. It's not run by some distant corporation. It's not run by a distant bank. It's not run by a, uh, a financier who lives in Japan or in, 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 in the city in London. Uh, so those were the basic uh, uh, goals of the original American system of liberty. And so in the 1970s, uh, especially, 
uh, we saw this new vision come along and the new vision, the new philosophy said, you know, rather than focusing on liberty, rather than focusing on democracy, rather than focusing on community, let's instead focus on efficiency. You know, if we focus on efficiency, then we can have more stuff. You know, if we, if, uh, if right now the state, this is the argument that uh, people made, the state is getting in the way of the industrialists who are really smart and they know how to make more stuff for us. And if we would just get out of their way, they'll make more stuff and we'll all be richer. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a silly, you know, in retrospect, it sounds remarkably silly. It sounds that sounds uh, uh, incredible that actually people would listen to this where, Oh, we're going to actually take a system designed to protect our liberty and our democracy and instead make it, you know, aim it at making more stuff. Uh, yet at the same time, at the time, what actually happened was precisely that we embraced this radical new philosophy, the Reagan administration did, uh, and they made it, uh, they used it to, as the guidelines, as the framework for all of this great body of anti-monopoly law that we had developed going back to the founding of the country. And, uh, and they, you know, so actually ever since, ever since the early 1980s, uh, rather than running in a direction that promotes individual liberty, that protects our democracy. Since, ever since the early 1980s, our political economy has been coded to run in a different direction towards efficiency. Uh, but what that really means, it's just a euphemism for monopoly. So for 35 years, coming up in 40 years now, we've been moving towards more and more monopoly and to more and more license for the monopolist to manipulate us. So the, the world that we live in today could not be more different than what we existed in the 1970s. It's like every single aspect of our society, every single aspect of our economy, every single aspect of our lives uh, has been upended by that change in philosophy by the neoliberals in, in the early 80s. I, I want to, before we, sort of, before I move to the, essentially what I kind of shorthand in my notes have references like this license to discriminate uh, with, and this manipulation that you just mentioned. What I thought was interesting and that you had flagged in the book was that this idea of focusing on efficiency and like the focus always being about cost and that it, it wasn't even that revolutionary because Senator Sherman talked about it back then. He, there was a there's a particular quote, and of course I can't read my handwriting now that I'm looking at the quote, where he talks about and that and that you had mentioned, where all this this focus on cost and 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 reducing the prices, it really just ends up going. It benefits the pockets of the producers. It doesn't actually benefit everybody else. And I thought, and I, I had no idea that he he had referenced that even back then. So when you're seeing what, how we view it in modern day, he, he took that idea and he dismissed it. And he was just like, no, that, that, that doesn't work. So I thought that was really, that was, I, 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 actually, I really had no idea. So that was, that was very interesting to read in the book. But to get to sort of the, your point and about manipulation, which is like a, it's a huge theme throughout the book, this was sort of the second major shift, right, in anti-monopoly enforcement is this license to discriminate. And you previously testified that, and if, if I may use one of your quotes, 
Americans have traditionally allowed some discrimination based on the class or type of a particular good or service, as long as such discriminations are approved and audited by the public. But under common carriage regimes, there must be no first degree or personalized discrimination in pricing or terms, end quote. Now, the book goes through this in great detail, but could you kind of walk through what you meant, what, what is this license to discriminate that we're now seeing? And maybe is there a real world example so that we can, so that it can inform the concept of manipulation that we'll get into? Yeah, no, that's great. And you know, there's two, you know, two parts to your question. And, and you know, the, the first part is, is they're both fascinating. And, and the first part about, you know, sort of Sherman writing about this, speaking about this issue about pricing back in 1890, you know, it's, it's, you know, people tend to think that we get smarter over time, that we get more sophisticated over time. If only. Uh, yeah. We, we actually think that there's progress. We, we believe in, in progress. Uh, and in many cases, there is progress. And certainly in terms of uh, uh, science, you know, compared to 1890s, there's been a lot of progress. Although I would actually argue that in a number of instances recently, we've been going backwards. I mean, some of the the fact that we can't produce a, a $1, actually a, really a 50 cent N95 mask in the United States in sufficient numbers to guard, uh, 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 guard lives, that's an indication of going backwards. Uh, but, um, you know, they, they, but there's a, uh, that's an instance, though, in which the people nowadays, people who have been antitrust experts in this country, trained to uh, study uh, these laws and study uh, these policies, uh, that the last generation, the last two generations of people trained are, have actually been trained to a really simplistic view uh, that is, is vastly less sophisticated than what the way people understood these problems in 1890 or like in 1785 or in 1776, you know, so, um, you know, so part of what the, one of our first steps to actually fixing these problems is to say, Hey, maybe, maybe we've actually become dumber than we used to be. And just, you know, and figure out what it is that made us dumb, you know, and one of the things that made us dumb, we should, let's understand. It's like, it was the neoliberals made us dumb. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, uh, Milton Friedman's philosophy is for stupid people. Uh, Robert Bork, I mean, it's like you read his book and it's very sophisticated in many respects, but then you kind of read through it, you cut through it, and uh, there's just certain parts in which it's just based on pure assertion with no fundamental facts, no fundamental arguments, just assertion. You know, so that's the, these, that philosophy is what made us stupid at least compared to the way we used to be you know as, as for and and actually the, and this issue that you, the second issue that you raised which is discrimination it used to be it, this is a perfect example you know the foundations of non-discrimination the foundations of uh, or actually let me call it what it really what we really should call it, the foundations of rule of law that's what non-discrimination means it means that there are rules the rules are public that we, everyone can see what the rules are. Everyone is treated the same. We get the same pricing. We get the same terms of service. Rule of law. Is, that is, you know, we have understood that that is the foundation of all property rights for 400 years now. If, and this is, you know, if, if property is not safe, that means that liberty is not safe. If a king can seize your property at any moment, 
for whatever reason, um, then you will do whatever that king wants in order for the king not to seize your property. So we've understood that without rule of law, property is not safe. We've understood that without rule of law, your, your liberty to speak your mind is not safe. Those are connected. Uh, if you don't have, uh, 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 if your property is not protected, if your ability to speak your mind is not protected, your democracy is not safe. It all collapses into autocracy. We've known that for 400 years. This goes back to what was called the Statute of Monopolies that was passed by Parliament in 1624. It, it's, in some ways, it's the beginning of democracy in Western Europe, is the Statute of Monopolies passed by uh, um, the English Parliament in 1624. There was a, and, um, and it said, hey, you know what, Mr. King, you just can't take anything you want. <laughs> no more. We're done with that. Uh, so, um, uh, so that's the basic rule, rule of law. And, uh, you know, monopolists, the thing about a monopolist is if you don't apply to them uh, 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 common carriage rules, if you don't say you have to treat everybody the same, you have to give them the same price, the same terms of service, what you've, if you don't do that, you essentially give them a license to take people's property at will. They can carry somebody's goods uh, one day and then just say no to somebody else. And then the next right. day is they'll, they'll say no to the first person and yes to the second person. And that kind of license, what that means is that nobody's property is safe. Everybody does what the king wants. And, and actually, this is something Sherman talked about. You know, Sherman himself said, if you don't limit the power of the monopolist, then you have a king. You have someone who can seize your property, seize your voice, concentrate power, overthrow your democracy. And here we are today with exactly that threat on steroids. So, so let's take that and then also apologies for a little bit of background noise. The puppy is running around. Um, let's take that and then let's, let's put it into modern day, right? We saw in the, what was it, early to mid-2000s, you had the mega corporations, right? Post-Great Recession, we now have the big tech monopolies. How has, so this idea of being, they're, they're licensed to discriminate, they're licensed to, to pick and choose. How has this informed the, the business models of the current, the, you know, for the most part, the, the, the tech monopolies, but like the current modern day monopoly. Yeah, this is actually a great thing for a, a book audience because, you know, this is, I, I first really started looking at, at this problem in real depth and asking people, you know, about, you know, about discrimination in late 2009. And it was specifically the relationship between Amazon and publishers, book publishers. And I said, I started knocking on the doors of all these publishers, very large publishers and, you know, the biggest publishers. And I went to meet with them and I said, hey, um, you know, uh, how does Amazon treat you? You know, do they give you like a standard set of, of services or do they treat you different than your competitor? And I said, oh, no, they treat us absolutely differently. They, um, uh, you know, for, uh, and, and not only do they treat us differently, but they contractually make it so that we cannot share information with anybody else. We cannot, we cannot uh, uh, share any information about our contract. Uh, and they will change their terms on a day-to-day -day basis. 
you know, one day it costs this much to warehouse a box of books. The next day it might be something else. So what became evident to me, this is 10 years ago, is that in the case of Amazon, the platform, and anyone who's trying to sell books, is that Amazon was basically using its power in ways that would make the publisher afraid because Amazon could shut you off. You know, today it costs $100 to move that set of books to the market. Tomorrow they might charge you $1,000. There's no law. Well, there actually are laws that prevent it, but those laws are not being enforced. So if those right. laws are not being enforced, uh, that means that the publisher uh, is always going to be afraid of the person who controls their access to the market. Now, you know, what's the problem there? Well, when you end up with really powerful publishers, really powerful people, and say one of the people who owns a, uh, one of the publishing companies in this company, this world, is uh, Rupert Murdoch. He owns HarperCollins. You know, if you have a world in which uh, Rupert Murdoch, he's a very powerful person. I think people have heard about him and they know what he does and they, they know what kind of sway he has politically. Now, if Rupert Murdoch is afraid of Amazon, um, now we're really getting in a dangerous situation. And Rupert Murdoch also owns a company called Wall Street Journal. When Rupert Murdoch is afraid of Google and Amazon, which also, which controls the access to the market for the Wall Street Journal, uh, that's also a problem because then you end up with Rupert Murdoch afraid of three different mega corporations and often trying to do what it is they want him to do. So, uh, so that's really the threat that we have to think about is like when, when someone controls the access to market of somebody of other people that can be small, like just small holders, you know, small business people or big business people, as long as they control your access to the market, you're going to pretty much do what they demand of you. And uh, what you end up with, in an extreme situation like today is you end up with a pyramiding of power in which, you know, you look around, you see hundreds, thousands of large corporations in America, but uh, you also see three corporations, which really increasingly serve as the bosses. So I just, if I may paraphrase, because I think it's a really, this is a really important point throughout the book. You basically, you have in the modern day monopoly context, you, you have companies that they have the freedom to price what a seller must pay for essentially their ability to sell goods or services on a particular platform. But then that same sort of behind the scenes power has the ability to, and the freedom to price and control than what the buyer can all will pay for those very same goods and services. They're controlling it essentially on, on both ends in addition to whatever data they may be collecting that then is informing the types of prices that they set in any given context. Is yeah. that, is that a fair? Yeah. And, and like the one way to understand the back in the old days, you know, back in the 1890s, one of the things we did with railroads is we said really simple, you must post your prices. These are your prices. This is, you know, this is how much you're going to uh, pay to move a box of goods from Chicago to New York. This is how much you're going to pay to move a carload of lumber from Minnesota, Chicago. And that, and, and, and no backroom deals, 
You can't go and do a, you know, do any kind of backroom deals. That's illegal. No special rebates. You know, no, uh, uh, you know, no special discounts. This is the price. It's the price for the public, and and that's the actually the only way to ensure that the person in the middle, the master in the middle, the person who has essentially the power of government, a monopolist, has the power to govern the people who are subject to its power. Uh, so the way to ensure that they don't misuse the power to govern people is to take away their ability to pick and choose winners and losers, uh, which is the same thing that we did with the king back in 1624 in Parliament. We took away from the king the ability to pick and choose winners and losers. You know, so this is, <laughs> it's foundational to democracy. And if you allow for this kind of power to exist at a large scale in the political economy, it will subvert your political system. The power that is concentrated in the political economy right. subverts the political system. So can we then, let's... Let's put this into sort of practical everyday life, right? Because I think a lot of times it's hard for folks who are not steeped in these issues on a, on a day-to-day basis, such as yourself, to understand why, why something like this is incredibly concerning and it's not just another issue that we as Americans, you know, just have to live with. Like that often comes up in sort of the privacy debate where you're like, well, you know, I've, I kind of have sort of tacitly I've given away this pri- all these privacy rights. What are you going to do? Um, and you've there, there was a quote that I have I, I I I can't remember now if it was from a previous testimony of yours or if it's in the book itself, possibly both, where you say quote, and this goes back to the issue of pricing and how the monopolies are able to target individuals. And again, like about make let's let's make this and bring it back to like the American people and and, and how it affects someone on a personal level. You said, quote, such individualized pricing for access to a vital good or service was viewed as highly destructive of economic, social, and political balances, end quote. And you've brought that up now a few times now, and it's a key theme throughout the book. Can you expand a bit on, on what you mean by that and what then in the anti-monopoly context was is is traditionally viewed as, as then a good thing. Like what's on the the opposite end of that yeah. for comparison purposes? Yeah. So the, the destructiveness of, of, of price discrimination, you know, economically what price discrimination allows you to do, if you, if you enjoy that license, if you're a monopolist and you can sort of treat each different seller differently, then uh, you, it's essentially a license to extort and you get to extort from each seller the maximum amount that they can pay. So, because they never know what the price is. You know what the price is, but they don't know what the price is on any different day. They only know what you're telling them the price is. But because there is no public price, they just got to pay. It's like you demand X, or that maybe the next day you demand 2X. They're going to pay because it's the only way for them to sell their goods, you know? So, what is economically over time, what this results in is the, is the, bankruptcy of the seller. The seller loses the ability to uh, invest in new technology. The seller lo- loses the ability to uh, 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 pay, uh, and say, in the case of publishers, uh, authors, you know, more money. And we've seen actually the, 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 the amount that publishers can pay authors going down and down and down. Uh, the publishers, like in the, just using that example, uh, you know, uh, publishers subject to a 
uh, uh, a powerful discriminatory regime like that of Amazon, over time they, they buy fewer books. Over time they spend less money on, on, on editorial. So the, the quality goes down. The, the amount of money for the entire system goes down. Uh, and um, what it means is that you know, we have fewer books. The books that we do have are, are less well put together. Uh, and the subject matter is often sort of cooked to make sure that the, the master doesn't get upset. Um, but, you know, it's like, so it's destructive of the, of the quality of a, of, a, of, a, of a set of products. It's destructive of an, of an entire ecosystem of human activity. Uh, but, you know, more generally, we should also just understand that you know, monopolization, you know, you're right. People think that, you know, you mentioned the word antitrust and people think, hey, that's something really technical. You know, antitrust is, you know, that's for experts, you know, that's for economists and, and specialized lawyers and, and people who studied this for a little long time. And it's like, and, it, and it's, you know, we'll, we'll just stick it over here in this little category. And it's just one of the many things we have to worry about. You know, actually, you know, the problem with monopolization is, you know, when you change the code, when the neoliberals changed the code a generation ago, uh, that changed every activity in every single part of our political economy. Why do we earn less money? Monopolists have more power. They can drive down our wages. Why does our health care cost more? Monopolists they've taken control over our hospitals. They've taken control over our drug companies. They have taken control uh, over our insurance companies. So they restrict the supply of hospital beds. They restrict the supply of drugs. So every day we spend more for less. Our health goes down. Our well-being goes down. Uh, the price of, of food goes up. I mean, for years, the price of food went down and down and down. But now we see the price of many basic foods going up because the power of the monopolist is so extreme, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, disinformation, you know, we, we look around our society and we see disinformation disrupting uh, uh, our political discourses. You know, why is that? It's because of the monopolization of communications by Google and Facebook and the way their business models are, are based on discrimination. So their business model is actually based on delivering nonsense to a lot of people. That's what they do. That's how they make money. Um, you know, so pretty much wherever you look in our society, whatever ill we see, monopolists either are the cause of that ill or they make that ill worse. They make that harm worse. So the reason this is important for us to deal with is because once we master this problem, every single crisis that we're dealing with today uh, it makes it easier for us to deal with that crisis. Environmental uh, uh, destruction, again, is something that's made vastly worse by the action of monopolists, by the Koch brothers. Koch brothers, are, uh, you know, Koch Industries, that's a monopoly. And what they do with their money is they promote monopoly. That's what they do. So, uh, and in, uh, so that's, you know, the fundamental thing is to understand that this is, this affects everything we do. It affects our entire society. It affects our future. If we're going to have a future, we have to break the power of the monopolist. So that's a, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the issue of the environment and, because I, I do, I want to get into that as climate change as a, as a current crisis and, and how this feeds into that. But before we do that, I, I want to frame this then in, a, in the national security context, because it, 
this is for the National Security Podcast. And you so you identified throughout Liberty that they're that the big tech platforms, right, that they are another one of these the threats to democracy and the rule of law, right? That we, we hear it in the news all the time, the various threats that are going up to democracy. It's frankly the, uh, what the bulk of my work has been focusing on in my day job, but the issue of this co- control of information and commerce. You mentioned disinformation, but there were a couple of other issues that you flagged as the main threats that these, that the modern day monopolies pose. Uh, could you just quickly walk through some one a few of those? Just like just what you know? Yeah, I mean, what like, you found you know, so concerning? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to you know the uh, again, you know, this was the subject of my first book. Uh, it was something I spent many years uh, looking at back then, but also it's it's an area that I've continued to do work. You know, back in in April, we uh, open markets. We we hosted a uh, a conference with the OECD in Paris. You know the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is sort of the premier international organization that looks at economic issues. And we, we uh, co-hosted a, a discussion about the intersection of COVID and uh, supply chain fragility. And, uh, you know, just the why is it that suddenly we don't have all these things that we need? And, you know, what was the, the conclusion of the conference? You know, it was like, oh, it's because monopolists came in and they... Uh, they just they got rid of all the excess capacity they uh, they got i mean even the word excess capacity they just they shrunk the amount of capacity available to make all these vital things to the point where when we need them we don't have them you know so um so how does that affect our national i mean that obviously affects our personal security when if you need a mask and suddenly you don't and you don't have a mask you may die you know, so that's a that's you know, but that's your personal security. But you know, when uh, a country like say, you know, we've seen this actually with China. China has made threats to sort of cut off the supply of of certain goods. You know, uh, right now, most of the raw ingredients in our drug supply in the United States, almost all the ingredients come from China. You know, ninety percent of the uh, um, the pharmaceutical ingredients. Uh, the raw pharmaceutical ingredients come out of China that we consume here in the United States. Now, that means that if China were to threaten to cut that off, uh, uh, or if they did cut that off, we would have no drugs. All these vital drugs that people take to, you know, for all these different ills and different sicknesses, we wouldn't have them. So that means that that's a national security threat because China can make that threat and they can get us to do things as a nation that we would not otherwise do. We can, they can get us to compromise in our actions. Now, there's a, you know, sometimes we may not compromise. So this actually raises another threat. You know, right now, is, you know, anyone who's paying attention to international relations, there's, we see that the, the, the tensions in the, um, in the South China Sea, the tensions in the East China Sea, uh, they're rising. They're getting worse. The, you know, the likelihood of some kind of a, a conflict, the likelihood of someone making a mistake uh, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, in the relations between Taiwan and, and China is high. Uh, and uh, if someone makes a mistake, what's the reaction? What's the result? You know, if, if we end up like 
if someone ends up blockading the other nation or embargoing the other nation or a combination of embargoes and blockades, the result will be potentially catastrophic collapse of production systems, a shutdown. <laughs> Suddenly it's like the Chinese will find themselves not able to make things and, and the United States and, and, and Japan and Korea and Taiwan would suddenly all find themselves unable to make really vital things. We, want, we wouldn't be able to make phones. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to make uh, uh, pharmaceuticals. We wouldn't be able to make computers. We wouldn't be able to ma manufacture clothing. So that's a national security threat. Uh, and that's something that could happen tomorrow. And, uh, you know, so there, you know, there's, we can just keep talking about this, keep unpacking this, but it's like there's just, you know, any time when you have hyper concentration and capacity and you don't actually have any actor, no government anywhere really looking at like where, you know, uh, where risk is concentrated and what are the potential dangers, uh, then you have the, the potential for catastrophic failure. Uh, and that's what we have today. And there's many potential disruptions uh, that could result in a catastrophic failure of, of vital systems. And it could happen tomorrow, it could happen tonight, it could happen, it could be happening right now. We don't know. True. So then I guess the, the question is, you know, is what can, what can people do about it, right? The, what is, you know, oftentimes you see in the media like, oh, I'm going to boycott this, I'm going to boycott, like, that doesn't work. So what, what can they do in the face of really these, essentially these like, great powers that are working behind the scenes? Yeah, and it's actually, it's, it's this, you know, uh, there's actually, and this is the good news, is because there's actually a vast number of things that we can do. Uh, and people are, you know, have been, after many years of ignoring the problem, you know, and as you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. So I, I, you know, I lived through many years in which people just simply ignored the problem. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen a radical change in attitude. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, so as bad as this sounds, uh, we're in many ways, we're in a better shape than we've been for years because we have people, you know, in the enforcement agencies, law enforcement agencies who are actually paying attention to these problems for, you know, in, in a real way. Um, uh, for the first time in 30 years, 35 years. Uh, we have, uh, you know, recently folks, uh, you know, uh, 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 in the, the, the state AGs in, in 52 places, you know, uh, including uh, Puerto Rico and, and Washington, D.C., uh, they launched an investigation of Google. There's like 49 different states are, are, are investigating Facebook unprecedented use of state power to deal with concentration of power. You know, the, the House Antitrust Subcommittee uh, has uh, just finished a, a you know, remarkably important set of um, uh, in, uh, investigations, which is going to be resulting in a, a publishing of a, of, a, of a report, a very important report, you know, shortly. The Europeans, uh, you know, right now we see the Europeans uh, like moving towards calling for the breakup of large corporations. They've never done that before. It's just not part of their tradition. They're moving towards that. So we see these, this advance all around the world. And we see people sort of coming to understand the danger, uh, very specific dangers like that of discrimination. Uh, so it's um, uh, so this is it's it's as bleak as the problems are. Um, this is a time of, of, of hope. Now, the one thing that that folks can do, you know, if you're listening to this, 
you know, boycotting is really, it doesn't work. It, you know, it's like with monopolists, a boycott just means you don't get what the monopolist is, is, is selling. And since that's the only place uh, that's selling it, you just don't get it. You know, so, uh, you know, and we've seen this with Facebook. There's been a bunch of boycotts and Facebook, you know, they just say, oh, oh hum, I don't care, you know, and they continue doing what they do. Boycotts don't work. Well, you know, except for like getting some headlines you know, and, and which is not nothing, but it's, it's not going to work in the long run. The way to do this is through law. We, and, and we have every single law that we need. Uh, what we don't always have are people in places of power who are willing to use the law. So it's actually one of the things that people can be doing is actually making sure that the the Biden campaign understands that this is one of your primary, it's like, this is what we need to be dealing with. If you care about the environment, if you care about healthcare, if you care about national security, if you care about wages, if you care about prices, if you care about small business, there is one thing that can, uh, that, that they can do uh, that can fix all these things at once fight monopoly, break the power of monopoly. It makes it all better at once. It's actually, there actually is a magic key to a better future. <laughs> and, you know, so tell the, the Biden folks, promise to deal with this issue. You know, uh, if, if Trump ends up back in, in power, make sure that Trump hears you and, and you know, and, and does this. Make sure every one of your Congress uh, uh, members, uh, you know, understands this, hears this. You know, it's like people pay attention in Congress to, you know, when people call up and complain about something, uh, you know, members hear it. So there's a lot you can do, but, uh, you know, the key thing is to actually do it. So, I mean, I think with that call to civic service, to getting out to vote, um, I think that is a great way to end our chat today. I, I One, thank you so much, Barry, for for jumping on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I want everyone who's listening, please go order Liberty from All Masters if you haven't already and go read End of the Line and go read Cornered as well. It is well worth the time. You have the time for those of you who are hanging out at home and with the holidays coming up, it is a must read, especially as we go into the election. Um, Barry, if you'll hang tight and say bye to everybody, uh, I would appreciate it. And Folks, also go subscribe to the New Book Network's National Security Channel. Go subscribe to the rest of the channels. There's hundreds of books, hundreds of channels. It's absolutely worth every second, and you'll get recommendations for all kinds of great books. Uh, but I think that's it for today. Barry, did we miss anything? Anything else we want to cover? Uh, no, I mean, Ari, you did a fantastic job. I mean, this is a great set of questions. I mean, I'll just end on one uh, one note, which is, you know, not only can we right now master the power of the monopolists but once we do that we will find ourselves with the liberty to fix all these things that now threaten us you know it's like we have become so afraid we've become so terrified we've become so despairing about the future of the world uh, that we you know we should understand it's like if if we knock out the people who are standing in our way we can actually master every single problem that we face and when it comes to climate change, when it comes to world hunger, when it comes to sort of 
communications nonsense, when it becomes to international relationships, it's like it's all within our reach. You know, we can make the world a vastly better place. Um, we can make it livable for a long time. But we got to break the power of the monopolists. Well, you heard it, folks, from the expert, Barry Lynn. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe. Stay well. Go buy some books. And we'll talk to you later. Bye.